This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile, found sometime last week, has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspections. Late this afternoon, a bulletin from New Mexico suggested that the widely publicized mystery of the flying saucers may soon be solved. Army Air Force officers reported that one of the strange discs had been found and inspected sometime last week. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. And welcome to our uh, two-hour special as we look at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. Uh, the pre- preeminent uh, Roswell investigator Don Schmidt is standing by, Victor Vigiani in studio, and we'll get rolling on this in just a moment for the full two hours. But first, just a couple of programming notes as I uh, work this frog out of my mouth, uh, out of my throat. The, uh, the YouTube uh, stream is, uh, is not live this week. Uh, however, we will get back to uh, that next week. The regular format will resume next week. What's in the box, our weekly remote viewing experiment, and, and so forth. So sit back and enjoy for the next two hours as we journey back 70 years as we look at the Roswell UFO incident. First of all, joining me in studio, my good friend, the executive director of the Zeland uh, Communications and Zeland News Network, Victor Vigiani. How are you, my friend? Just fine, and it's great to be with you, and uh, looking forward to, to our chat with Don. First, before we get going with that, mm-hmm. uh, kudos to you for your yeah. exemplary work at the Alien Cosmic Expo mm-hmm. uh, this past uh, June. Uh, and thanks to your hard work and, and uh, others at the, uh, the Expo, you, you actually seem to break through and get some decent, finally some decent mainstream a newspaper reportage mm-hmm. on this on this issue. Yeah, Congratulations! We, thank you very much. We certainly did. We uh, got the Toronto Star engaged. Uh, the Ben Rayner, uh, a good friend of mine and a senior uh, reporter, 
uh, and music and entertainment critic at the Star, Toronto Star, uh, did a fantastic job uh, on reporting uh, about unacknowledged about the film that uh, Stephen Greer produced, and also uh, the Toronto Sun, uh, which has been following our work a lot in the past three or four years, and the fine reporter Jenny Jenny Young did a great piece on the expo. So, and you, you were the central part of that. That's article. right. Yes, I. They uh, they came over and uh, did some photographing of me and uh, around my computer and all of that, and Jenny. Uh, you know, spun a really great story around uh, the work that I've done in the past to to promote the expo and uh, the expo itself uh, in it well in advance of it. Thank goodness. So, well, you have been laying the groundwork for you know some decent articles mm-hmm. on the UFO uh, arena, if you will, for well long before I I've known you, mm-hmm. and now it's finally starting to pay some dividends. Yeah, getting through to uh, mainstream media and having them recognize what's going on here in Canada has been a goal of mine for many, many years. And I think that the glass ceiling that exists both here in the United States, uh, more so in, in the States, um, we, we need to break through that glass ceiling in terms of journalism to get journalists to really develop the necessary curiosity about what this issue is all about and give them an opportunity to really investigate the whole gamut of, uh, of what we're talking about with respect to the UFOET issue. Well, that is in large measure because of your credibility. So again, congratulations. Well, thank Victor. you very much. Let's get Don Schmidt in here. Don R. Schmidt is the former co-director of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies, where he served as director of special investigations for 10 years. And prior to that, he was a special investigator for the late Dr. J. Allen Hynek and the art director for the International UFO Reporter. Uh, the website is roswellinvestigator.com. And uh, his latest book is called Cover Up at Roswell. Donald Schmidt, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Oh, so good to be back with you, Richard, and Victor as well. So I'm amongst uh, the best of friends. Thank you for having me back. Thank you. Oh, wow. Hard to believe. Seventy years, uh, Don. Seventy years. And, and, uh, neither, and none of us are that old, I hope, right? So. <laughs> no, no, no. Nowhere near, near that. But... Uh, at this point, just kind of an overarching general question, is anything new uh, in the investigation of Roswell and the UFO incident since we last talked, I guess since uh, the children of Roswell came out? Well, certainly we're, as I would use the uh, analogy, we're on the one-yard line with about 30 seconds left in the game, so to speak, in that the World War II generation is just about all gone. And that's been really the the saddest aspect in all this Uh, you know even thirty years ago when we were first discussing conducting our own independent investigation of roswell and even back then everybody was telling us all our colleagues well you can't investigate something that's forty years old well we we pretty much proved that uh, that wrong that incorrect but now you know in facing the reality the, the starkness of the fact that Every time I go down to New Mexico, as I always say, it's a little more lonely because everybody's gone. And the fact that we're starting to also lose the children, that now the sons and the daughters are also passing away, such as in the case of uh, Dr. Slash Colonel uh, Jesse Marcel Jr., yes, whose father was the head of intelligence of the 509 Bomb Group stationed at Roswell in 1947 and was one of the, uh, you know, premier witnesses to the entire affair and, and pretty much set the spade work 30 years later when he broke his oath of, of, of secrecy and, you know, stated very, you know, very frankly that I handle pieces that were not made on this earth. And, and so we've had to adapt, we've had to adjust, 
And we realized, I mean, true, we're dealing more and more with the families. We're getting more and more deathbed testimonies where people are finally, you know, confiding at the very end and telling their loved ones that, yes, I was part of this recovery operation. It was not from this planet. It was something extraordinary. It was something manufactured elsewhere. And the little people, the little men, they, they all refer to, you know, the, the, uh, the, the non-human bodies which were recovered. But what we're also doing is we're, we're, we're really going to focus more and more on the Ramey memo, which is that, that uh, telex message that Brigadier General Roger Ramey is holding in one of the infamous weather balloon photographs. Right. This is where they, where they, they sort of forced Jesse Marcel to pose with the remnants of what looked like a weather balloon, which was official explanation number one uh, uh, for uh, the incident. And I guess that certainly left a bad taste in, in Marcel's Boy, mouth for many years. But in that same photograph, as you say, Ramey is, is holding up a telex, and, and uh, that has been analyzed uh, so that we can actually read what was on that telex. Exactly. And it's exciting because it, it clearly is a smoking gun. Uh, you, you mentioned the balloon was the first explanation, but uh, actually it was the second. Right, because the first, one, forget, right. the first one... That, that it was an actual flying disc. And five hours later, a uh, balloon is substituted with a radar reflector kite. And as you mentioned, uh, General Ramey is holding that teletype. He's actually holding that piece of paper in four pictures. And in three of them, it's the back blank side of the paper of the teletype. And it's in only that one, as though he caught himself and then flipped the paper. Ah. But the fact that there's a full paragraph of type. And even back in 1990, when we first uh, learned that the original negatives still existed and that it was a, a reporter back in 1947 by the name of James B. Johnson, who worked at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, who took those very pictures, which is the reason they were preserved. And they were kept at the... Uh, Bentman Library Collection, University Collection down in Denton, Texas. And we were able to, you know, get reproductions from the original negatives, and we realized, my God, you know, with a little computer enhancement, we, may, we might be able to read this. And in, in 1990, we had Dr. Richard Haynes, who, uh, you know, with his work at uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory and with NASA, and he was already doing computer enhancement, we felt, you know, well, let's, let's throw it to Dr. Haynes, see what he can do with it. And he was able to pull out a few letters here and there, and one word did jump out, and that was the word balloon. So we walked away convinced it was a press release on the weather balloon explanation. Right. Right. That's simple. And so there it languished. It sat there in limbo for the next, uh, you know, 10 years. And then we realize that, well, you know, now we have, we have programs. We have actual software that we should go back and let's see if we can read the rest of it. Well, that's when, and then as you, you both know, it, we turn the corner. And especially as far as with the professional, the expertise of Dr. David Rudiak and Dr. Donald Burleson, we now, they're able to read about 75% of that teletype that is visible in that one photograph and where it makes reference specifically to disc 
on two occasions. It talks about uh, multiple locations, multiple sites in reference to the crash. But I think, and clearly the smoking gun, the line, the victims of the wreck you forwarded to blank blank at Fort Worth, Texas. There you go. That is the smoking and gun. Victims of the wreck. So obviously what victims in association with a weather balloon radar reflector kite. So it establishes the fact that there were bodies recovered at Roswell. It doesn't state specifically they were extraterrestrial, no. But it throws the onus right back on the government. What bodies? What victims? Indeed. Don R. Schmidt is uh, with us, and his latest book is Cover Up at Roswell. Uh, and uh, previously, of course, the UFO crash at Roswell, the truth about the UFO crash at Roswell, witness to Roswell, uh, and last year, of course, the children of Roswell, and his latest, once again, cover-up at Roswell. Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network is with us in studio. Take it away, Victor. Actually, I just wanted to go back to that, that, to that memo, Don, of, uh, sort of looking at it here, and the way David Rudiak, and was he one of the, the, the major forces that sort of uh, unraveled that, uh, that kind of messy type that was, uh, that was presented to him? Was he the major figure in that? Oh, yes, of course he was. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll credit to David. Um, we, uh, Staten Freeman originally managed to get a scan, a drum scan, mm -hmm. from the negative. And the library was always very leery, just the very process of doing a drum scan because you have to bend the negative. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was only the, um, the legibility was only uh, a certain percentage from the, uh, of the original negative. And when we had it done a year later, we increased as far as the intensity to the point that we were very close to actually having the negative. The last time we did it, they, they told us, for all intents and purposes, we had the negative. Mm. And, and that's where, and, and David specifically, Dr. Rudiak's specific technique is just to blow it up on the wall in front of him. And for those, for example, and we've had colleagues who have suggested, well, you're chasing you know, faces in the clouds. Right. Well, that's nonsense, because yeah. you're talking like snowflakes. Every mm. one is different. Well, here there's only 26 possibilities. And then you're only talking about specific words that then have to, to be consistent within the context of a sentence. And it has to also be part of military jargon as also, you know, can easily be demonstrated. So it, it condenses it down to the point that it's exactly as Rudy X says it is, such as the line victims of the wreck. And if not, then... Somebody has to come up with new English vocabulary, new words altogether. <laughs> All right, I got to okay. jump in here. Uh, this may be, aside from the individual, you know, testimony. This may be uh, the most, singly most important piece, single most important piece of evidence uh, as we discuss the 70th anniversary of the UFO Roswell crash uh, back in uh, July of 1947. Don Schmidt on the phone and Victor Vigiani in studio from Zealand News Network. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740. Or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. None of the materials that we picked up weighed anything. Looked like it was weightless. You couldn't feel that you had anything in your hands. I found one piece of metal, what looked like metal anyway. It was not flexible, but it was as thin as a fall of a pack of cigarettes. It was that thin. One of my boys told me, said, there's something unusual here. He said, uh, I tried to make a dent in this metal. He said, you can't bend it. You can't make a mark on it. He says, I took a sledgehammer and, and whammed it. I put it on the ground and whammed it. The, sledge, the sledgehammer bounced off of it. He told me not to say anything. He says, I'll have it from now on. And that's exactly what he did. When he came out, he said, he told uh, the press that was there, he said, uh, that was nothing but a weather balloon, crashed weather balloon. It was definitely not a weather balloon. And uh, it was an aircraft. So what it could have been, I wouldn't know. I still don't know. All right, that is, of course, uh, the aforementioned Jesse Marcel, who was um, with intelligence at the 509th uh, Army Army, uh, Airfield in Roswell back in July of 1947. And uh, he is describing some of the material that was picked up from the uh, UFO crash debris field. As you listen back to that, uh, uh, that, uh, that testimony from Jesse Marcel, um, did, he, did he, since he made that statement up until he passed away, or even his, his son Jesse Marcel Jr., did they deviate from that at all? Did they add anything? Did they take away anything? No, not at all. And I never had the honor and the pleasure to actually meet Jesse Sr., we came into our own investigation three years after he had already passed away in 1986. And uh, I would have loved, I was one of the things that to this day, I still point my finger at, at Stan Friedman. And why didn't you take him out to the debris field? Why didn't you ever take him out to essentially recreate the scene of the crime, so to speak? And, you know, actually walk through that area and, and, and recreate what transpired through that day when he was first led out there by the rancher, Mac Brazo, and uh, filled up uh, t- two vehicles before they drove back to the base of Roswell. Um, and there would have been a lot of questions that I, and one of the things that I would have loved to have asked Jesse is, did you see the bodies? Because we've had witnesses and even family members within the Marcel relation who have described to us that Jesse did acknowledge that he saw a couple of the bodies. Ah, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So he acknowledged it in private, but he never stated that for the record. That's correct. And in fact, even uh, his grandson, Jess III, repeated what his grandfather had said in an El- uh, a KLB interview in Albuquerque, New Mexico just months before he died, that there was still much that he was not able to talk about. And so I think in many ways, in 1978, 
when he first went public. He was testing the waters. And I think he had a rude awakening when you consider that there wasn't a single American publication that even touched the story. Here's the lieutenant colonel who was the number one intelligence officer in the United States military back in 1947. And he's dying of emphysema at the time, so he essentially is providing a deathbed testimony that he handled actual wreckage from a crashed UFO and stated, as a matter of fact, that it was not made on this earth. And the sad part being that nobody touched the story except the National Enquirer. <laughs> so does it make, you know, is it any surprise that he did just also come out and say, well, I also saw the bodies, maybe you'll believe that. Well, you know, it was like we had that, that famous scene in our Roswell movie with uh, actor Kyle MacLachlan actually portraying Jesse Marcel. And they're at a, at a reunion, and he's taken aside by a deep throat, by a plainclothes intel officer who's played by actor Martin Sheen. And Sheen tells him it's all true, confesses everything, that you know, the whole situation, you know, we are being visited, we are in contact, you know, we are you know, cooperating with uh, the phenomenon as, as best we know. And then we, we, uh, we incorporate into the script where Marcel would finally say, well, what, or he would ask, well, what did I see out in that field back in 1947? And then the Sheen character reels him back in and goes, why, Jesse, that was just the weather balloon. <laughs> and he goes, no, it wasn't. I held it in my hands. And he says, you go ahead. You tell the world what you saw. You have no proof. And that's been the trump card that the government has had over the last 70 years. The fact that it's almost like the old uh, the scene in the vampire confrontation where the, the vampire character is saying, go ahead, tell the world I, I exist. You can't prove it. That's right. No one will believe That's it. That's right. No uh, one will yeah. believe it. On that same point, Don, I think, I think it was in the, uh, your book, The uh, Children of Roswell, that you mentioned that some of the witnesses, I'm not sure if it was the children or the actual witnesses, moved through the, the field. Uh, and, and grab some of the most exotic pieces of the craft yes. as if they were in some sort of unintended candy store, just picking yes. these things up as they went yes. along. Um, would you ever expect or you know, have you ever seen any evidence that some of these pieces may surface at some point? Oh, we've had so many false alarms through the years. I can't tell you how often we've jumped on a plane and uh, with the hope that somebody would provide us with that, you know, that ultimate holy grail. And we've to date, you know, conducted five archaeological digs at uh, the very debris field site. Uh, we've had uh, many a crash investigator tell us that there's no way that you can absolutely retrieve every last shard, every last, uh, you know, microscopic particle, you know, from uh, a crash. And uh, as a result, you know, we we continue. It, and, and considering that the area covered an area of almost a, a square mile, and the fact that witnesses, as you described, Victor, I mean, it was a candy store. They described how they were even hiding pieces in, 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 in canned jars 
of fruit down in their storm cellars, down in their basements, because they realized they had something very extraordinary. And it wasn't like they displayed it in a trophy case or up on a, on a fireplace mantle, that type of thing. No, they hid these pieces away under floorboards in you know, their homes and out in sheds and down in, in fruit cellars and that type of thing, only later to have everything confiscated by the military as they made a, a house-to-house, ranch-to-ranch, you know, systematic uh, search of the premises. In, in, in trying to retrieve every last piece of physical evidence. And, you know, uh, gentlemen, that's always been one of the, the greatest arguments against this being a top-secret project or, uh, or anything that we were testing because it was the physical evidence that they made every effort to retrieve. It wasn't somebody had knowledge of this or that or somebody had documents or, you know, had photographs that could demonstrate otherwise. It was, no, anybody who had physical proof that this indeed was something beyond the pale, something that could not be explained away. And that is why, even years thereafter, they were still confiscating materials. They were still searching. We have tales, we have stories from the rancher, the ranch hands, still out at that original ranch, describing as recent as the late 80s, catching Air Force personnel still out at that site looking around. Ah, interesting. Yeah. And I can assure both of you, they're not looking for pieces of a weather balloon. Well, let, let me ask you about the, the, the you're right, the second, the second explanation. The first one was that it was actually a, a, a disc that was captured by the Army. Yes. The second one, Project Mogul, the weather balloon. Uh, have they been? I mean, they they claim that uh, this was a balloon that had been launched on. I think it was June the fourth or June the fifth. Yes. Uh, and and uh, flight number four. Right. Yeah. Didn't they go back though and check the log, the the the, the entry, and found that uh, due to weather there wasn't one launched on such and such a date, but it was launched on another date, and that one was recovered. Yes, and in fact, the very launch of the very log from that uh, scheduled launch flight number four, they had already filled the balloons with helium. So it was the array, which would have been the radar reflector kites, the hexagonal reflector kites, which is what they, their claim you know, confused Marcel and the personnel at Roswell because of the reflective foil, you know, this flimsy material that you could you know, tear, you know, you could crumble up right in your own hands. And totally contrary to the descriptions of the witnesses, all describing this this nearly indestructible, paper-thin, practically weightless material. And and, and yet um, it, it doesn't matter that the very flight that they attribute to Roswell was a non-flight. Right. And as you describe, Richard, it was then retrieved. Uh, they have to coincide it with the July 9th interview with the rancher Mac Brazo, where under military guard he is taken to the Roswell Daily Record, the newspaper, and he essentially retracts his original story, that it was just a balloon, we gathered it up on June 14th, and uh, the military came and retrieved it, and, um, you know, end of story. So, so a rancher is able to identify it as a balloon, but the head of intelligence at the 509 can't identify it as a Precisely. balloon. 
precisely. And the base commander, Colonel William Blanchard, who now, 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 now let's look at this scenario. Let's, let's, let's just look a step back and, and watch this ourselves for a moment. The rancher comes into town, and he doesn't go to the military. The first thing he does, he goes to the sheriff's office, the Chavez County Sheriff, Sheriff George Wilcox. Wilcox is impressed enough with the material that he dispatches two of his deputies to go check it out. It's a holiday. It's a Fourth of July weekend. They could have humored him. They could have said, "Mr. Brads will come back tomorrow on Monday, you know, and maybe we'll we'll look into this." No, he sends out two of his deputies, and it's also important enough that they contact Marcel, who is on duty. He's having lunch at the PX when the call comes in. Marcel drives out to the sheriff's office. He examines some of the wreckage, sees that he cannot identify it, and then he takes some of it back and informs the base commander, Colonel Blanchard, who then, upon witnessing the wreckage himself, he doesn't just send out a couple of GIs, a couple of enlisted men to, again, humor the ranch or check it out. No, he sends out Marcel, his head of intelligence, and his head of counterintelligence, Captain Sheridan Cavett, in the event it's something foreign, because that's what Cavett specializes in. So everything that has transpired up to that point demonstrates that no one could recognize or identify this wreckage. Except the, except the rancher. Let, let me uh, jump in. the rancher, who just happened. Hey, I just tried to tell them it was a balloon, but nobody would believe me. All right, Donald Schmidt is uh, with us. The, the latest is cover-up at Roswell, exposing the 70-year conspiracy to suppress the truth. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zealand Communications. Back with more of our look back at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. They took pictures, of course. They had a whole flock of microphones there. They wanted me to, to they wanted some comments from me, but I wasn't at liberty to do that. So all I could do is keep a mouth shut. And General Ramey is the one who discussed or uh, told the, the, the newspapers, I mean the newsmen, what it was, and to forget about it. It was nothing more than a weather observation balloon. Of course, which we, we both knew differently. We left uh, Roswell perhaps around 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. As you can see, it's flat. It is very difficult. In fact, uh, with just verbal directions, we know would have found it. We had to follow the rancher out there. The following morning, we went out to the site where the crash was. And what I saw, I couldn't believe there was so much of it. It was scattered over such a vast area. So we proceeded to pick up as much of the debris as we could, loaded in the wagon. We filled that up. It took us a good part of the day to do that, because uh, there's such small fragments. And we had to do a lot of picking. We found a piece of metal uh, about 
about a foot and a half to two feet wide and about, about two or three feet long. Felt like you had nothing in your hands. It wasn't any thicker than the foil out of a pack of cigarettes. But the, the thing about it that got me is that you couldn't even bend it, you couldn't dead it, even with a sledgehammer would bounce off of it. So I knew that I had never seen anything like that before. And as of, as of now, I don't know what it was. It was not anything from this earth that I'm quite sure of. Because I was being an intelligence officer, I was familiar with just about every, all materials used in aircraft and in our air travel. This is nothing like that. It could not be. It, it could not have been. There we have uh, the late uh, Jesse Marcel, chief intelligence officer with the 509th Army Airfield at Roswell. And uh, welcome back to our, our look back at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. Don Schmidt uh, is with us on the line. RoswellInvestigator.com, the website, and uh, the latest book is Cover Up at Roswell. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zeland Communications. And uh, I, I want to pick up on the, the, the Max Brazel mm -hmm. conversation we had earlier, because, Victor, I knew you had, uh, you pointed out something that I wasn't aware of uh, about Max's son. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I'm forgetting exactly where I saw it. I think it was in the, in the, uh, the children uh, of Roswell about Vernon Brazel. Uh, mm -hmm his mysterious disappearance in 1960. Yes. What was that all about? Uh, Vernon was seven, eight years old at the time of the incident. And the um, original young boy who was with Mac, who was assisting him on the ranch at that time, was one of Floyd and Loretta Proctor's sons. Timothy, they called him D, his middle initial, right. D, yes. Proctor. And he was all of seven years old, and one of the things that the ranchers always emphasized to us, that is, as quickly as a child could walk, they were put on a horse. So they, uh, they contributed, they helped with the, the chores uh, on the ranches. And so it's summer vacation, the kids are out of school, and uh, so uh, D. Proctor happened to be with Mac when he actually discovers the debris field the early morning of July uh, 3rd of 1947. And uh, when Mac, a few days later, and due to what we believe because of the severe lightning storm, and they would typically watch, it's high desert, the lightning, and we've witnessed this ourselves, the lightning strikes the ground because of being high desert. And so they typically would start watching for circling hawks and birds demonstrating that there was a livestock down, cattle or uh, a cow or a sheep, that type of thing. And, and this was what alerted them to this site about two and a half miles from the debris field atop this bluff. And we, we've we heard from enough sources that there were at least a number of boys, uh, Sidney Jack Wright, uh, two of the Eddington brothers, both deceased, uh, uh, D. Proctor, and then Mac's son, Vernon. Now, after the incident... And as Vernon, you know, became an adult, he went into the U.S. Navy. And he returned home in 1960. And he took on a job. He rented out a, a home at that time, had a girlfriend. And one particular morning, he didn't show up for work and didn't pick up his, his final paycheck. Even his girlfriend had no idea, had not heard a word but most, uh, you know, alarming of all was the fact that his very family, his mom and dad, 
never heard from him again. There was not a word as to his being somewhere else, that he had uh, not fallen to foul play, that uh, he was whisked away or he, finally, he, he packed up and left on his own, whatever the case may be. His brothers, his sister, but his mom and dad, none of them ever heard from Vernon again. That's astounding. Listen, I've got to jump in here again. This was a short segment. We'll take a yes. time out, come back, and uh, we'll continue to look at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. Premier Roswell investigator Don R. Schmidt is with us. His latest is cover-up at Roswell. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zeland News Network. Stay right there. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Loose lips sink ships. And sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. My name is Carlene Green, and I live here in Roswell. Uh, My father was in the Air Force, and he was stationed here at Roswell at the time uh, in 47. Uh, He was assigned as part of the cleanup crew out at the site. He had the highest security clearance that the Air Force gives, but uh, he was never able nor did he ever attempt to discuss the incident. He passed away in 1988. He had uh, his last tour of duty was in Vietnam, where he acquired Agent Orange. Ended up with uh, cancer of the spine. He did not want to die at home. He wanted to die in a military hospital. And as he was laying on the gurney waiting to be loaded into the ambulance, he told me, he said, baby, he said, the story is true. He said, don't let anybody try to tell you any different. He said, the incident happened. There was a spacecraft. He said there were graves out there. And I kissed him, and that's the last I got to talk to my dad. But he was very committed, a committed gentleman. He, his love was for the service and his family. And he did his best to take care of both. What he told me, I believe with all my heart, Uh, There is no doubt in my mind. There you have uh, Carlene Green. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. She's uh, the daughter of um, a first-hand witness to the uh, crash of a UFO at Roswell or near Roswell, New Mexico, back in July of 1947. Don R. Schmidt stays with us, the author of Cover Up at Roswell, Victor Vigiani in studio uh, from Zeland Communications, Zeland News Network. Uh, Don, your, your comments on, on Carlene Smith's testimony. That's pretty moving, poignant Carlene stuff. Green. Yep. Carlene's father was Sergeant Homer, he was a Master Sergeant, Homer Rowlett. Uh, 
He was with the 603rd unit at the base, and they were the principal squadron which uh, were involved in the recovery operation. We always thought the, uh, the, the, the 1293rd, which was the MP unit, would have been the obvious choice for securing the site, uh, managing all you know, elements of uh, policing the recovery operation. And they were, but they were on the peripheral. They were on the outskirts. They, were, they handled as far as cordoning off the site and the checkpoints and that type of thing, whereas the 603rd that Carlene Green's father was a member of, they were hands-on. They were those who were involved with the actual recovery of the wreckage, but more specifically, the bodies. And uh, as, as Carlene describes how uh, on her father's deathbed before he was uh, taken into that operating room, before he had uh, open-heart surgery, that uh, he confided to her about uh, that uh, not only was he part of the recovery operation, but he had seen the bodies and that one of them was alive, which is, again, consistent with um, both the military and the civilian testimony that we've acquired. And then what was great is that her very brother, Larry, also corroborated the uh, the same information. That we'll we'll hear from Larry uh, yes. a little bit later in the program. Victor? Yeah, I wanted to um, to address the issue of Captain Oliver W. Pappy Henderson. I remember uh, reading some of the material uh, about him. Uh, I think he was one of the ones that assisted, or he was the chief pilot or the head pilot of the, the C-54, and he witnessed, uh, purportedly, um, the loading of the uh, of the debris, mm-hmm. and um, I think I recall reading in uh, the day after Roswell, I believe it was. I'm not quite sure about that, but the reference to the fact that there were crates being yep. loaded into the belly of the C-54. He witnessed this whole thing. Um, how does he fit into all this? Uh? Well, he was a member of the Green Hornets, so uh, he was one of the uh, the more highly respected pilots within the military at that time, and. Um, it was in the late 80s that he and his wife, Sappho, happened to be in a checkout lane. And there was one of the tabloids that had, you know, it could very well have had a, a story on, on Major Marcel. You know, what had been claimed as far as, as far as the crash at Roswell. And he remarked to her, well, it looks like it's all coming out, so I might as well tell you. So he finally confided to her. And we did a, um, a dramatization of, of Pappy at the hangar and uh, the, the wreckage that was crated up and then loaded into a C-54 aircraft and then a, a, a number of the bodies. Mm-hmm. And, and Pappy, O.W. Oliver uh, W. Henderson, would talk about the bodies reminded him of Casper the Ghost. Not only that they were very pale, they were very ashen in color, but also the shapes of the head, which when you think about it, uh, there's no nose, no uh, slit for a mouth, no ear appendages or anything of that sort, no earlobes. And the other thing, his good friend, Dr. John Cromshorter, described to us that what what especially bothered uh, Henderson was that as a young boy, he had attended, he had gone to his uncle's funeral. And that the pale, the ashen gray color of his uncle inside the casket also reminded him of the bodies. 
and so he was he was uh, he was a little spooked by the entire ordeal, let alone by the fact that he realized that they were not human. But it also was a throwback to even his childhood experiences. Yeah, the the, the affidavit that I'm familiar with that didn't his, did his wife not um, put forward some sort of affidavit uh, clearly outlining exactly what Pappy went through? Yes, there, there were a couple of affidavits too, weren't there? Yes, and there was also Mary uh, uh, Good, I hope I have that name correct, that was his daughter, mm-hmm. and that she also described in her affidavit that um, there was an, an occasion, even many years before, that he had finally confided to her mother, Sappho. Mm-hmm. And they were out stargazing one night, and, it, and the topic just came up. And at what, at, 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 to, to, to which his daughter asked, you know, you know, are we alone? Are we? And to which uh, her father commented, well, you know, it's true. You know, they're out there, yeah. and you know, we're being visited. Yeah, yeah I think the uh, her name is uh, Mary Grood, G R O O D E. Grood, yeah, G R O O D E, right? Yes. Um, yeah. The the other the other point I wanted to raise. Uh, I mean, this is all sort of historical, uh, obviously, but there is something that occurred in 1995. I think you, you quoted uh, or cited this in, in, um, in The Children of Roswell, uh, that a United States um, officer, or at least a department within the United States Air Force, uh, attempted to change the mind of the son of one of the Roswell intelligence officers yes. as late as 1995. I mean, yes. is the government still working on this or what? <laughs> What's interesting is that in 1997, when they came out with their fourth official explanation, and that being the anthropomorphic wooden crash dummies to address all the, uh, the body witnesses that we had accumulated up to that point, um, Captain James McAndrew, who was the actual author of the Roswell case closed on the crash dummies, but before that he also was the chief researcher on the Project Mogul report. And Jess Jr. described to us that for the better part of a year, Captain McAndrew was calling him up and you know, just you know, asking him to please reconsider that those I-beam structures that you describe having witnessed in the kitchen of your home that late, or I should say early morning, 2 o'clock in the morning, when his father on his way back to the base from the debris field with his car, his uh, 42 Buick convertible, loaded you know, to its gills with wreckage, and he wakes his wife, Viad, and Jess Jr., and takes them to the kitchen. And there he has the floor just covered with this strange wreckage. And Jess picks up uh, an I-beam structure, and, you know, he, he, he points out, what are these symbols? What are these structures, you know, that uh, you hold up to the light? They're pinkish in one direction, and then they're purplish in another direction, depending on how the light is cast right. on on this material and so here it is 50 years later and captain or I should say major McAndrew at that point is arguing with Jess Jr trying to convince him that well what you actually witnessed was nothing more than masking tape with flowers painted on them on these sections and it shrank 
from the desert heat into what looked like an I-beam. And at one point, Colonel Marcel reminds him that he outranks him because McAndrew is screaming at him, according to Major or Colonel Marcel, what's it going to take for you to finally, you know, believe that all you handled, you know, were strips of masking tape? And Colonel Marcel never backed down, even to the slightest, and to what we feel is a very profound acknowledgement on the part of, you know, Major McAndrew when he finally retorted, he finally, you know, you know, essentially gave in and stated, well, then, Colonel, I guess we'll, nev- we'll never know what you actually handled back in 1947. Let so me- here's the very author okay. of the Project Mogul Report and Roswell case closed on the anthropomorphic crash dummy report, and he confides, he finally capitulates, he finally cries uncle and says, Colonel, then I guess we never will know what you actually handled back in 47. Amen. End of story as far as we're concerned. (laughs) We're heading into a break in about two minutes, but just final question before the break, and that is getting back to these anthropomorphic crash dummies that were supposedly dropped from high-altitude balloons. Project High Dive, yes, and Excelsior, two different projects. Okay, so 1954 is when those... those That's right, that, 52 so it, actually and 54 were, yeah. Okay, so is, has that been 100% confirmed that they didn't start those crash test dummy tests until 1952? Absolutely. In fact, we even spoke to the very son of the creator, the designer of the very crash dummies. And he, when that explanation came out, he himself, according to the son, was quite livid because it was though he was responsible and he never was, uh, he never was uh, honest enough to step forward and say, yes, those are my crash dummies that they're describing and uh, nobody should believe anything, you know, anything further they describe. And the point being that the very designer and inventor of those crash dummies, he confided to his son that the, the interesting thing about Project High Dive is every time those, first of all, those dummies were six feet tall, and they wore a full jumpsuit, and they were dropped by a parachute. So we don't have any witnesses describing jumpsuits. We have no witnesses describing parachutes, and we certainly don't have any witnesses describing six-foot-tall wooden Dummies. All right, I've got to jump in here. And uh, uh, speaking of uh, Operation High Jump, <laughs> High Dive, we'll uh, we'll um, continue this conversation on the other side. You're listening to the Conspiracy Show. Our look back at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network stays with us. Likewise, Don Schmidt, the author of Cover Up at Roswell, exposing the 70-year uh, conspiracy. Uh, to suppress the truth about the Roswell UFO incident. Back with more. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live. From Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Headline.
time edition, July 8, 1947. The Army may be getting to the bottom of all this talk about the so-called flying saucer. As a matter of fact, the 509th Atomic Bomb Group headquarters at Roswell, New Mexico, reports that it has received one of the discs which landed on a ranch outside Roswell. The disc landed at a ranch at Corona, New Mexico, and the rancher turned it over to the Air Force. Rancher W.W. Brizel was the man who discovered the saucer. Colonel William Blanchard of the Roswell Air Base refuses to give details of what the flying disc looks like. In Fort Worth, Texas, where the object was first sent, Brigadier General Roger Ramey says that it is being shipped by air to the AAF Research Center at Wrightfield, Ohio. A few moments ago, I talked to officials at Wrightfield, and they declared that they expect the so-called flying saucer to be delivered there, but that it hasn't arrived as yet. In the meantime, General Ramey describes the object as being of flimsy construction, almost like a box type. He says that it was so battered that he was unable to determine whether it had a disc form, and he does not indicate its size. Ramey says that so far as can be determined, no one saw the object in the air, and he describes it as being made of some sort of tinfoil. Other Army officials say that further information indicates that the object had a diameter of about 20 to 25 feet, and that nothing in the apparent construction indicated any capacity for speed, and that there was no evidence of a power plant. The disc also appeared too flimsy to carry a man. Now, back to Taylor Grant in New York. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome to Hour 2 of our special look at the Roswell UFO incident, the 70th anniversary. Don Schmidt is with us on the line, the author of Cover Up at Roswell, Exposing the 70-Year Conspiracy to Suppress the Truth, and in studio, our good friend Victor Vigiani, Executive Director of Zeland Communications and the Zeland News Network. Victor, uh, give us a, uh, a website, how people can read your press releases and your articles and so forth. Now, the best way to reach uh, all the information is just to Google the word Zeland Communications, all one word, Z-L-A-N-D, and communications, and you'll come up with the uh, with all the press releases and the articles that, uh, that we put forward. So that's the best way to... Um, I, I guess the best way to describe it is a, it's a news organization that we... In, in Canada, it's the only one that we have that uh, attempts to report on this whole phenomenon in, in a very, hopefully, objective way, but that gets, uh, gets the information out, not necessarily by writing uh, stories about it or just looking at the facts and reporting it and getting the information out there and letting people decide uh, what they need to do with the information. Over the next hour, we'll hear from some more witnesses. Uh, Glenn Dennis, of course, the, uh, the mortician at uh, the Ballard Funeral Home in Roswell, who has some very interesting stories to tell. Uh, we'll also uh, hear from, uh, I believe, uh, Savage Dodson, another witness, and Larry, uh, it was Carla Green's brother, uh, who we heard from previously. Uh, his last name is escaping me, but... Uh, Rowlett. Rowlett, Larry Rowlett. We'll also hear uh, from him. Uh, before we get back into it, though, Victor, just give us some impressions. The 70th anniversary of the Roswell mm -hmm. UFO incident... Uh, as, as Don has said many times, you know, we're in a race with The Undertaker, now the second generation, the children of Roswell mm -hmm. now, dying. So what are your thoughts? Are we ever going to get to the truth? Well, this, I, I think the, the answer to that question has to be an eventual yes, because people like, you know, uh, Don Schmidt and Tom Carey and uh, Stan Friedman, 
and other people who have done research on this, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming about the, the incident itself. But the other side of the coin is the resistance that the United States government, the United States military, is still expending in order to put the last nail in the coffin of this issue. They are still trying to shut people up about it. In other words, you know, threatening people. Uh, they did it back with Frankie Rowe. I think we could have maybe Don talk about that incident of one of the, uh, the daughters of a, one of the firemen that was, was out at the site, uh, the way they threatened that family, and they're still doing it now. So I guess the, the, you know, why, why the intimidation, why the fear factor still in 2017? So there must be something going on behind the scenes that they don't want the general public to know about. So it's a double-edged sword in terms of when this is going to come out and how it will come out. Right. I guess a, a better way of asking the question is that we already have the truth. The question is when are we going to get an admission? And the, exactly. the answer to that is probably it, never. It, probably never, yeah. Don, your thoughts yeah. on that question? Well, I think, it, it, and, and, and Victor, you, you, you speak of it uh, quite accurately and uh, actually quite sadly when you think about it. That um, you know, I cite the, the the current the contemporary example of, the, uh, of even Edward Snowden. Whether one thinks of him here in this country as a traitor or even a hero, as a whistleblower, the irony that an American would have to flee to Russia for sanctuary for protection, when the exact opposite has always been true, and the very thought, the culpability, and Victor, you're correct in that. The truth is there. The story, the eyewitness testimony, I can't tell both of you how often we have had even skeptics tell us that the book, our book, Witness to Roswell, which just provides an opportunity for all of these witnesses to just speak out and tell their personal accounts and how it all plugs in, that it all becomes part of this fantastic mosaic, whether military, whether civilian, whether media, they are all describing the same extraordinary event, and they all reacted extraordinarily as though they were dealing with something, you know, beyond the pale, something they could not comprehend. And I, 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 the irony, when you think about it, the last time that former President Bill Clinton was on the Jimmy Kimmel show, and this is all they talked about, and. Clinton lamenting the fact that I had eight years in the Oval Office and I couldn't get them to tell me the truth about Roswell. And we could add President Carter and the late Senator Barry Goldwater and the late Congressman Stephen Schiff and the former governor of, Bill, uh, of New Mexico, Bill Richardson. And I'm sure we could add others. So we're talking right up to the office of the presidency. And so I would always throw this back even to any of your listeners who would think, well, I know better. I know that this couldn't have happened. Anything but extraterrestrial, that uh, people need to believe the government, that this was nothing more than a, a top-secret mogul balloon. Well, what do you know that even the president doesn't know? What do you know that senators and congressmen uh -huh. and governors don't know? Uh, maybe you should, you know, please, you know, Inform them of what, you know, your information is because they still lament the fact that they cannot be, they cannot get the truth about this. So I'm in very good company, right up to the office of the president. <laughs> you know what's interesting? People, the skeptics always say, whether it's in the UFO arena or elsewhere, they always say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. That's not, that's right. not true, though. That's it, it, that's you don't right, have yeah. to have extraordinary evidence. You just have to have evidence. Precisely. 
Precisely. And testimony, eyewitness testimony, is at least in 2017, is still considered pretty good evidence. Especially the the forensic nature of what uh, yes. what some of these researchers have done. How up. many people have been sent to the gallows in the electric chair based on eyewitness testimony? Eyewitness testimony. And in the case, uh, and, and at least here in the United States, deathbed testimony is admissible. It's considered physical evidence. And we have to date over two dozen deathbed testimonies. And each and every one of them talks about the little men, the little people. They talk about that this indeed was the recovery of a flying disc. It wasn't a weather balloon of any sort. It wasn't a rocket. It wasn't an aircraft. It was something non as far as, as one of the witnesses said to us, they sure weren't from Texas. <laughs> Take so, that, Bill Nye. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, and I, I, we had a debate here. We had to deal with him on Larry King. Yes, I remember that. And he couldn't even get the right weather balloon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to bring up the issue of uh, issue fatigue, um, Don. It, yes. There, yes. I, I think you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Uh, after such a long period of time, 70 years, uh, I would imagine that the U.S. government, the military, or whoever are the, the holders of the secret, um, are hoping for this issue just to kind of fade away right. um, uh, in hopes that if it does resurrect itself in a really, really meaningful way, um, and I have a suggestion about that, maybe we can talk about it later, but the fact of the matter is, if this thing resurrects itself in a, in a meaningful way, the entire national security, um, I guess, uh, matrix of the United States is at risk. It, it, do you think that's one of the reasons why they want to keep the lid on it? Is it a national security issue of the highest priority? Well, I think that's been an acknowledgement even from the highest elements of the Pentagon, of the, of the military for years, that, um, that if, should UFOs actually exist, that it would indeed be a threat to national security. You have aircraft, you have devices, you have unknowns that are able to fly through not only our airspace, but Canadian airspace, every uh, you know, sovereign airspace around the world with total you know, impunity. You know, we can't touch them. We can't outperform them. There's nothing we can do. And as a result, who's going to step forward and say, well, yes, we are being visited. We are not alone. Uh, there are aircraft that are able to outmaneuver, outperform anything that we throw at them, anything that, uh, you know, any effort on our part to identify them. We don't know where they're from, who they are, what their motives are, but vote for me come next election. You know, mm-hmm. who's going to accept that responsibility? You know, the Walter Cronkites and even the Pope, for that matter, will they, will they rise to that occasion? And as we've mentioned, the threats, the, the very physical threats to American citizenry, that therein would, uh, would lie the culpability. Just imagine the class action suit that all these families could then unite and throw back at the United States government. You mean you threatened us over what you claim was nothing more than a weather balloon device all those years, and now you finally concede that we were telling the truth, that we were accurate, we were correct, and we, you know, had to face your wrath after all that time for nothing more than stepping forward and trying to tell the truth. So there is a, a lot at stake here, and, and, and certainly back in '47, the actions of the military were justified. 
We had the Soviet Union breathing down our, our necks back at that time. And, and certainly it was a case of who could ever reverse engineer, who could ever develop the technology first, could potentially rule the planet, you know, could have total air supremacy. And we'd have a whole fleet of flying saucers, and, and, and nobody could challenge us. And so here we are now 70 years later, and as you've heard me, as you both have heard me, heard me state in the past, I still maintain it's a cover-up of ignorance, that we still don't have any answers. You just have a, a don't know from why, from where, from who. A few minutes before we head into the next break, and I want I want you to explain to me, Don, why the army first released, you know, the first explanation. Yes. Why? What's the rationale? If they, then they had to backtrack and cover up, and then for seventy years cover up. Why mm-hmm. the initial uh, press report that it was a captured disc? Well. One of, again, the, the, the misnomers that the debunkers always uh, provide is that it was a knee-jerk response on the part of the base at Roswell, that they just overreacted, and before higher-ups could, you know, essentially pull them out of the fire, so to speak, and uh, identified as nothing more than a weather balloon device, that it was just, again, a, a simple overreaction. Well, that does not uh, accept the scenario the actual chronology of events that Washington, D.C. already had some of the wreckage in hand by late Sunday, July 6th. And they did not put out that press release until a day and a half later on Tuesday, July 8th. So they had plenty of time to stage this, to word the press release in such a way that it appeared as though they had the disc in hand, does not name the ranch or the rancher. It doesn't name anyone but Major Marcel, and he immediately is shipped out of Roswell for the balloon press conference in Fort Worth. So it was a, a staged event. They essentially uh, they create the straw man, and then they tear it down. They could not deny something had happened because the rancher already had talked to the press. It was already getting out to the public. So they had to acknowledge something. And they masterfully put this together where we have a flying disc. Oh, by the way, we just have it now in front of us. And sorry, ladies and gentlemen, it's nothing more than a weather balloon with a radar reflector kite. And the press accepted it. Keeping in mind that post-World War II, the military walked on water. And whatever they stated as an explanation, the media accepted as well. And that's why they took a major gamble, but it worked. And it lasted for the next 30 years until Major Marcel finally broke his oath of silence and said, "Uh, wait a minute, ladies and gentlemen, The first press release was the correct one. It was a flying saucer. All right. uh, We will hear from uh, Glenn Dennis, uh, who worked at the uh, Ballard Funeral Home in Roswell. Uh, When we come back, Don Schmidt stays with us on the line, the author of Cover Up at Roswell, in studio, Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network, Zealand Communications, as we look at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Big Brother is listening, and so are you. To The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Contract from military services out at the Roswell Army Airfield. And this uh, gentleman called and said he was a mortuary officer at the base. He needed some information. I said, what do you need? And he said, uh, how many uh, hermetically sealed infant caskets do you have? Three and a half, four foot in stock. And I said, we don't have any. How long would it take you to get them? And I said, well, I can call Amarillo by 3.30 this afternoon and have them in here in the morning. I said, what's going on? He said, that's not important. I said, well, it is important also, but anyway. Then I hung up. Then he uh, called back later and he said, uh, I need more information. And uh, you want to know what embalming chemicals that would alter the tissue, the stomach contents, and what is our preparation for uh, taking care of bodies that are laying out in the elements for several days? And I said, you're the mortuary officer and you're asking me because I do it your way, you know. I've tried to find out who I was talking to. But uh, there again, I was very stupid and I hung up again. And so, but anyway, later on in the day, I got an emergency. We had a, the only ambulance business in Roswell at that time. And this airman was riding an old Indian motorcycle and he hit the back end of a farmer's trailer out here going into the gin. And so, when I arrived at the base, where I usually back up to this ramp and unload the patients, there was three field Army Air, Air Force uh, ambulance backed up against the ramp. And uh, so I had to swing around. But anyway, we were walking up the ramp and I saw a lot of debris. And so uh, when I got in and checked him in, got all the vouchers and everything signed, I said, this uh, captain there, and I said, sir, it looked like we had a crash. I need to get ready for it. And who in the hell are you and what are you doing here? And I said, well, I had an emergency and we have the contract for all military services. It looks like you had a crash. He just said, stay right here, don't move. And so I stayed there and pretty soon he came back with two military police and said, get this guy off of the base. You're not supposed to be here. And uh, that was uh, Glenn Dennis the uh, mortician at Ballard's Funeral Home in Roswell, New Mexico. One of the key witnesses to the Roswell UFO incident. We're taking a look at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. Don Schmidt on the line, the author of Cover Up at Roswell. Victor Vigiani uh, in studio from Zeland News Network. Uh, is, uh, has Glenn uh, passed on, is, or is he yes, still with us? Yes, yeah. Glenn uh, passed on uh, about three years ago, and for about five years up to that point, we honored his privacy, and um, he wasn't in the best of, uh, of, uh, of health at that time. So uh, I had always hoped to have uh, one final opportunity, and I honored the wishes of the family and never did. And, uh, and so many others, like Walter Hott and, and, and other witnesses of, of that level, I, uh, I always made every effort to at least say goodbye. Uh, it, it, I, it's like I, I've lost my uncles over and over again with so many people. <laughs> right. I was going to say, of all the testimony I've heard, that one to me is the most compelling. And the detail, what do you think, Victor? Well, that's, I was just going to pick up on that. Um, in a, I'm not saying that I'm a uh, linguistic expert, but in, in, the, in my training, um, 
in, in language development within children uh, and even adults too. Uh, when I listened to the actual linguistic patterns of the way Glenn spoke, I'm not talking about what he said, you know, the content, how he said it, the way one word leads into another and the way another idea uh, leads into uh, the, his ideation about the contents of what he was talking about was so specific you know, stomach conf- uh, contents, uh, ambulance backing up, uh, you better stay there and don't move and don't go away. Uh, that does not sound like a man bent on making something up. As a matter of fact, that kind of testimony is probably impossible to make up on the, on the, on the spur of the moment. The, the, I think that's probably, as, as Richard just said, one of the most impeccable pieces of te- verbal testimony that I've ever heard. And in a court of law, it would have to stand up and convince a jury that something had to be, had to be going on at that time. All excellent points, Victor. And uh, we uh, were able to uh, corroborate, for example, the phone calls. Uh, a former chief of police and uh, another nurse and a, a, an attorney, long-standing attorney in Roswell, who all described to us you know, in detail that within days after the incident that Glenn, Glenn Dennis, the mortician, was still talking about these unusual phone calls, requesting information about you know, the, the, preser- the preservation of bodily fluids and uh, of, of bodies which had been exposed to the elements on the desert for a prolonged period of time. And, 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 and most unusual was the request for the child-sized caskets. And, uh, you know, at one point we had, uh, we tried to talk to, and it was after some, uh, another investigator uh, by the name of Richard Thiem had managed to even talk to the son of uh, the father who made the drive up, up to Amarillo, Texas from Roswell. And as it turns out, that's where they used to pick up the caskets. And he described uh, to uh, Richard Thiem that they made the long drive up to Amarillo for this uh, urgent you know, pickup of these child-sized caskets. And by the time they returned back to Roswell, the city was under lockdown. It was all blocked off, and they had to circle to the west of the city to come in. His father dropped him off at home as he went out to the base. And when he first returned back the next morning, he was white as a ghost and acted as though this was, you know, truly, you know, something that shocked him when he learned what was actually going on. And and so it's where you plug in all of this testimony. And it isn't where anybody is contradicting the other. It's like we can tell you who were on the special flights in and out of the base, and who were the guards posted around the hangar, and who were the doctors and nurses out at the base hospital, and who were the, the GIs out on the desert floor on their hands and knees picking up all this wreckage, and who were driving the trucks back and forth, and who were driving the ambulances, and who were driving, who drove the high-low uh, transporting the remains of the craft, that type of thing. We can assign different witnesses to all of those specific events in this entire chain of events. And um, nobody is, you know, saying, no, 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 I was the one who did that. Oh, no, you didn't do that. I did that. They're all either reading from the same script or they're describing exactly what, what they're participation it, their involvement was back at that time in terms of the um, of the participants and the testimony it's like there are no missing pieces of the puzzle i mean <laughs> i mean we don't have the physical evidence but in terms of the who was involved as you say who was where who did what what did they say it's it's all there 
the puzzle well, is complete, or am I am I missing no, something? No, and that's and I think, Richard, that is I think the most amazing thing about this entire situation. You can talk to any crime investigator. You can talk to any insurance. A claim adjuster, and they would, you know, they would all describe how ten people would witness an event. You'd have ten different accounts, but it's uh, it's 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 called the Ramachan effect. It's based on a Japanese murder trial. In fact, there was a movie even made about it. And what it basically comes down to is that there are three positions to every occurrence, every event, and what it what it comes down to is that. There is your version, and there is my version, and then there is what actually happened. And the difference being with the skeptics, with the debunkers, they don't care what actually happened. They, as far as their minds are made up, that their opinion is all that matters, anything but extraterrestrial, and they do nothing to try to prove what actually happened. The difference being that for all these years, and as I state that our investigation is still fluid, it is still striving to determine what actually happened. And that is the major difference in all this. And as you said, Richard, as we continue to still plug in these pieces, these remaining, these final pieces, uh, there was an MP, he was with K-Squad, the Kitchen Squad. His name was Melvin Brown, and he was posted behind an ambulance truck. And he was told to keep his eyes forward. And on his deathbed in London back in 1985, he described to his wife and his two daughters how the first chance he got, he lifted up the tarp, and there were a couple of the bodies inside the back of this ambulance truck. Well, two years ago, I spoke to a former pig farmer by the name of Raymond Pollard, whose weekly job was to go out to the base and pick up the, the remains, the scraps, from the kitchen, the mess halls, because he would, they would feed them to the swine, to the pigs. Well, he described to me that he had a hell of a time getting onto the base because the base was under lockdown. And he finally said, well, you know, you need to dispose of all that garbage anyway, so you might as well just let me onto the base and I'll blow it up and I'll take off. Well, he described to me that there was a sergeant on the loading dock who was talking about the strange people he saw out at a crash site north of town. Well, okay, who was that, Sergeant <laughs> Brown? But the point is, here it's even a pig farmer who's picking up the garbage from the mess hall, and he becomes a witness to what had transpired north of town. Yeah. So it's like, again, they're all reading from the same script, or they're describing exactly yeah, yeah, what they witnessed. Yeah, you know what it's like, Don? It's like sitting on a beach and watching waves come in one at a time, at one right after another, just relentlessly hitting the shore. And that's what I, I feel sorry for you in a lot of ways, because you know, you, you've seen so many waves come forward, and each one of them is just soaked with this grand mosaic of information. Um, and it's just, it must be very frustrating for you. I want to ask you, um, in the time we got left here, you know, you've been through this a number of times. You know, you go over, you, probably, you, you eat, sleep, and, and, and dream this kind of stuff. Is there anything, any incident that you are aware of that even comes close to the comparison uh, of the importance of the Roswell incident in terms of the, the depth of information and the validity of what's really going on? I would have to honestly say no. Okay. And for this reason that 
not only did you have, do we have, as far as, as an historical benchmark, the fact that they put out that press release, that they actually announced that they had captured a flying disc. And then they named names, so they established a trail. Now, granted, they explained it away five hours later, but nonetheless, that as witnesses get older, and especially uh, due to the, the courage, the bravery of, of Jesse Marcel stepping forward and saying, wait a minute, I handled that wreckage, and it was not made on this earth, that it establishes then a, a continuity that well beyond the retracted information that people eventually are going to step forward and say, well, I was there, and they were not from Texas, that type of thing. And so it establishes a minutia of information, and it creates this snowball that continues to get larger and larger and larger. And the difference, unlike all other UFO events that are just fleeting experiences that people see something in the sky or maybe at best even see something on the ground, but with Roswell, you have the actual recovery. You have where planet Earth actually takes possession of physical proof that we are not alone. And as a result, we're not glancing skyward hoping that they come back someday. We're able to point to Washington and say, you have the proof. You've been sitting on the physical evidence for 70 years. And as long as earthlings contain or uh, still uh, possess that physical proof, there is hope that we may finally pry it loose. All right, stay right there, Don. And uh, likewise, Victor, we'll be back. We'll hear from Glenn Dennis again and uh, some other witnesses as we look at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. Don Schmidt, author of Cover Up at Roswell, Victor Vigiani, Zeland News Network in studio, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, Here's two more numbers, 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sennett from Zoomer Radio. They were two pathologists. I understood they were from Wright-Patterson. They were not done an autopsy. They were examining what was brought in from the Roswell crash, what we call the Roswell crash. But the reason that she started out the door and then they said, Lieutenant, we still have to have some help. And this is what you're going to do. And they wanted her. And so they'd take a forcep and turn a hand. She'd say four fragile fingers, so many centimeters, and all this kind of stuff. And she said she hadn't went in there over 20 or 30 minutes at the most. And all their eyes and it started burning in their skin. They were feeling it was getting real warm and real hot. So that's when they just immediately, they had no idea what they had there. Two pathologists said there wasn't anything in, their, in the anatomy books. There wasn't anything in what our medical schools. They had never seen anything like this. And uh, that's immediately after that they were put in these uh, 
pouch is put in a hermetically sealed container and flown directly to Wright-Patterson. All right, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show and our look at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. Don Schmidt is on the line, and uh, he is the author of, well, the latest is Cover Up at Roswell. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zeland News Network, and we just heard again from uh, the late Glenn Dennis, the mortician at the Ballard's Funeral Home in Roswell. And uh, this was, uh, he's speaking about a, a friend of his who was a nurse uh, who was called in to work at the uh, the Roswell Army Airfield in uh, July of 1947, and it sounds like she was participating. And he said it wasn't an autopsy. They were simply examining these bodies. And again, Victor, what stands out is the, the impeccable detail. And as you say, it's not what he says, it's the way he says it. I mean, it's just, it sounds so genuine. Authentic, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, well, your thoughts on that, Don? I don't believe anyone spent more time trying to track down Glenn Dennis's nurse. We went to old convents. We we went through uh, as far as old nursing schools with the hope that we might come up with a class photograph that she was pictured in, and realizing that. Glenn Dennis had provided us with a, a false name, a wrong, uh, the wrong name. And Tom Carey was with me at the time that I finally confronted Glenn. And there was a bit of a shouting match back and forth. And I finally realized that what Glenn was doing, what Glenn Dennis was doing, was, was protecting the woman, protecting the fact that, that she may even have still been alive at that time. And I also had to concede, now you're talking about, again, the World War II generation, and Glenn was married to his second wife, Kay, at that time. Well, his first wife was also still alive. Well, it didn't take much to finally, you know, <laughs> determine the fact that Glenn was having an affair with a nurse. Ah. I mean, it was that simple. <laughs> the pieces come together. Yes. And so, yes, and, but again, it doesn't disqualify the story. No. It doesn't no. mean that, well, you know, he would make up such an outlandish story to protect the fact he was having an affair with uh, a nurse who didn't even exist, as these, again, the naysayers would say. Well, at a later point, we learned about another nurse, and we confronted her. And the first words out of her mouth were, did Glenn Dennis tell you all about me? Well, we <laughs> didn't want to acknowledge that because in reality, he had not. Though we had run her name back, uh, you know, we had run her, her name past him, and his reaction was, oh, well, I told you. You know, there was such a nurse. Well, anyway, the next morning after we did meet with this nurse, and we once again confronted Glenn Dennis, the mortician, and then he retracted, he recanted the whole thing. So it, 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 it became quite evident that she had called him immediately after we had left and, uh, you know, essentially read the riot act to him that you promised or I had asked you never to say a word. How did they know about me if it didn't come from you? But the point being, it did not come from Glenn Dennis. It came from another source. But nonetheless, he recanted. He, you know, I never told you about her. You know, I don't, I don't know that she was involved, that type of thing. So 
it was amazing how they even knew about one another. Mm, indeed. Uh, and and, and we, they're, we, too, demonstrating that they were aware of one another's participation. Don, we're heading into a break. We've just got about 10, 15 seconds here. But do we know the identity of any of the pathologists? We know of some of the pathologists, some of the uh, forensic experts who were at Wright-Patterson, Wright Field, in 1947, yes. All right. Listen, we'll uh, pick that up on the other side. We'll also uh, hear from some more witnesses uh, coming back. Uh, We'll hear from, I believe, uh, Savage Dodson coming up next. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show and our look at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. My name is Larry Roulette. I'm the son of... Carl Roulette was a sergeant in the Air Force. And my dad and I's relationship was, I can't say it was an excellent relationship, but it was a, it was a good relationship. We never had any big problems or anything. It was, it was in the late 80s, and I was talking to my dad. We were out in his shop, and we kind of got into a conversation about it then. And that's when he let me know that he was, that he had been on the cleanup crew that went out to pick up the crash site in 1947. So we kind of got into it. You know, he didn't want to really, you, you had to pry things out of him and it was hard to do, but I don't, he was sick back then too, I believe. So I don't know. It's, uh, but he told me about the, the grays. So they got out there and then turned around and all of a sudden there was three of them laying there. You know, so they bundled them up and took them back to the dispensary on the base. After they they got out here and they found out they were in over their heads out here, they flew them to Dallas-Fort Worth. And then from there they went to the Little Pentagon, which is Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. He told me to be best if I didn't tell anybody. And then he said, you know, that the government had told them when this incident happened, that this, the government had come to or gathered them all up, the ones that was out there, and told them that they were not to say anything about this. And they threatened them with their pensions, threatened them with their lives, threatened them with their families' lives. Word came out that they told them that it was a big desert out there and you could be put in places you'd never be found if you talked about it. Well, we've heard that uh, time and time again, haven't we? That was uh, Larry Eugene Rowlett, uh, uh, brother of uh, Carlene Green, uh, who we heard earlier. These are the the children of the witnesses of uh, Roswell. And we are looking at the 70th anniversary of the Roswell UFO incident. Once again, Don Schmidt uh, joins us on the line. He is the author of Cover Up at Roswell. And in studio, our good friend Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network. Um, so the bodies. Uh, you mentioned before the break, Don, that um, you, you were able to identify the uh, the pathologist at Wright uh, Pat, uh, but but not the pathologists who were on the ground at uh, Roswell. Correct. Well, and uh, we've we've had 
numerous testimony, like from some of the nurses, like Rosemary McManus, who was at the base hospital at Roswell at that time, that all these outside doctors and nurses arrived on the scene. And they essentially were, you know, told to stay out of the situation. Which, to, and to McManus, for example, she made the comment to me that clearly something big had happened. Walter Hott, who was the public information officer, at one point when we had asked him in regards to Glenn Dennis's calls about the preservation uh, efforts in uh, you know you know in preserving the bodies and the body tissue and fluids and everything, that they did not have a morgue at the base hospital, so they weren't set up for something of, of this nature at all. And so going up the chain of command and Wright Field in 1947, they had the Biological Medical Research Facility. And the late Leonard Stringfield, who specialized, and he was one of the first people to actually interview uh, Lieutenant Colonel at that time, uh, Jesse Marcel, as to his involvement at Roswell. And it was Len Stringfield who had talked to a number of autopsy medical doctors who had uh, supposedly performed uh, such work on the remains from Roswell. And they even described specifically and in detail the very biological, physiological nature of the bodies and their digestive tracts and their stomachs and their lungs and, and, and their, their bone structure and that type of thing. And the use of the word humanoid, that they were like us in many respects, but yet they were not. And the testimony being very consistent as to the bodies recovered at Roswell and then in conjunction to the remains, the bodies that were received at Wright Field were consistent, that they were describing the same as the Ramey memo would say, the victims of the wreck. I, I want to address a question that's been sort of haunting me a little bit about all this. Um, yeah, there, there's two aspects to it, I guess, Don. You, you've, you've interviewed, how many interviews have you conducted about this? 300? We've, we've talked to over 600, 600 people, okay. either directly or indirectly involved. With reference to the bodies, okay, how many of these witnesses, independently, without any prompting on your part, mention bodies? Would you, I mean, I, I don't want to put you on the spot for a specific Oh, number. not at all. Not at all. And, and, and I believe, as we've been able to demonstrate, that the, the witnesses specifically to the bodies are the ones that were threatened and intimidated the most. It's, it's one thing if you've only handled or even seen the bizarre, the strange wreckage. You might be able to convince any of the witnesses therein that well, it's something top secret. It's something. It's a. It's something new of our design, and you're going to have to keep quiet about it. You can't say anything. But the moment you've observed non-human bodies, remains of you know of something that clearly, you know, demonstrates that we're dealing with a life form from off the planet. All bets are off. Uh, one of the things that truly intrigued us as to the, in, the actual involvement of non-human remains was why, if the rancher Mac Brazel simply handled wreckage, 
simply saw this material that he could not identify or anybody else he had, you know, displayed it to. Why would they then abduct him, keep him out at the base for five full days unless he truly saw something else? And then when radio station reporter Frank Joyce described to us how Brazel, when he was brought to radio station KGFL to retract the original story, and Brazel would then go off mic, they'd go out into the lobby, and Joyce would remind him, what about the little green men? To which Brazel then turned back and said, but they weren't green. Mm. And you start to again plug in all of that, and you realize <laughs> that whether it's the fire fighter uh, Dan Dwyer, who described seeing the bodies north at the impact site, and then you have Brazel and the young boys who were with him, and you then have the personnel at the hangar. We talked about Pappy Henderson and his flying out a number of the bodies. You have the nurse at the base hospital. This is all in many, and sadly in many cases, secondhand, but nonetheless they're all describing remains. And then you throw in the document, the teletype, victims of the wreck. Well, it's not us asking about the bodies. It's where different people from different vantage points, whether out at the ranch whether out at the hangar, at the base hospital, or then the special flights, and then you have the teletype. We're not asking the question. They're all plugging it in once again, as Richard was originally saying, that no matter from whatever vantage point you have, you're providing a piece of that puzzle. Let's get one more piece of the puzzle, and this is, another, this is a first-hand witness. Let's hear from uh, Savage Dodson. My name is Savage Dodson. I was a young GI, 22 years old, at Roswell Army Airfield in 1947. My job out there was in technical supply, and that job included taking care of what we called flyaway kits. One day, the base supplier called me and said, we have some fuel injection pumps for your flyaway kits. And I said, okay, I'll come up and pick them up. So I went to base supply in a weapons carrier and picked up four fuel injection pumps. When I came back by the supply unit, I told my friend and buddy there that we worked together, I said, I'm going up to the hangar where the flyway kits are to put these injection pumps in there. I drove up to this hangar and backed the uh, weapons carrier up to the personnel door and got out. And with my key, I was about to open the door. I noticed there was an individual over here, but I had not paid any attention to who he was or what he was doing. And the guy said, hey, Sarge, where are you going? I said, I'm going in the building here to put some fuel injection pumps in our flyway kits. He says, you can't go in there. Well, I didn't pay a great bit of attention to him. I just kept walking with my key, and I got almost to the door to insert the key. And he says, I says, you can't go in there. Then I looked at him to see who he was. I noticed he had on an MP armband and he had a 45 on his hip. I said, you and who else says I can't go in there before I saw this? He says, me and this, and patted that 45 on his hip. 
Well, you don't really argue with a person with a 45 on his hip. So I said, okay. I turned around, put the key in the pocket, got in the weapons care, went back down to the section and told my friend H.T. White, I said, he said, I thought you were going to put those injection pumps in the flyaway kit. I said, I was, but there's some guy up there with a 45 on his hip and won't let me in the building. And we passed it off and thought more of it. Three days later, base supply called it. We had some more parts up there for the flyaway kit. I went up and got that, added the fuel injection pumps that I was there with three days earlier, went up there, walked in, no problem. So why did the man keep me out of that building at that particular time? I do not know. I may, I may be wrong, but why, why else would I be kept out of that building when I was going in on a daily or weekly basis any time I wanted to go? That was a Savage Dodson. Well, I mean, this is an interesting piece of testimony because he didn't see bodies, he didn't see debris, but he... I mean, speak to me, Don. We only have about a minute here, but why this piece of testimony is, is, is important? Because he was able to confirm not only the lockdown on the base, that the big hangar, as they referred to, was called P3 back in 1947, Building 84 as it's known today, that there were specific orders of uh, shoot to kill. Anybody that even came around the hangar at that time, unauthorized, as to what was transpiring from within. And so uh, Dobson was able to actually you know, describe uh, the overall um, contention and the actual fear that was, uh, was transpiring out at the base at that time. Uh, he worked at one of the hangars to the west of the flight line and uh, even west of where the operations building was. And when we actually walked out there with him on one occasion and this is the opposite side of the base and yet they were fully aware of uh, the uh, the the entire atmosphere on the base at that time it was actually eerie as he and others described that it was though something was going on nobody could put their, their finger on it and it certainly wasn't anything involving the recovery of a of a silly weather balloon that a five-year-old right. child would have recognized one of the things that, that occurs to me is prior to this it seems like security at the roswell army airfield was pretty loosey-goosey and then everything changed on one particular day but uh we are out of time gentlemen listen i i really appreciate the time uh, don you've spent with us and uh, looking back at the 70th anniversary, congratulations on cover-up at Roswell. Thank you. Well, thank you to both of you. I always enjoy this. You're two dear, close friends of mine, and I wish you 20 more years of this show, Richard. So, Thank you. Well, it's the one thing that the, uh, the Pentagon didn't count on when they, they started this cover-up, and that was Donald R. Schmidt. First time. Yeah. Victor, thank you. You're most welcome. Pleasure to be here. All right, my thanks to Ian Robertson. Back next week with a brand-new show. Hope you'll be along for the ride. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.